As you all know, we're in a study of the biblical covenants. There are four major covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. We've studied the first three. Last time we finished the third covenant, the Davidic covenant, and we began the new covenant. The covenants were given to Israel, but ultimately all of humanity benefits from them. Each covenant is different, and yet, as soon as I say that, I have to say that the covenants interconnect. The covenants are interrelated. As we've seen, the covenants are the meta-narrative of the Bible. They're the big story of the Bible. Sometimes we drill down and we study the leaf with its veins on it, the, 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 the details of the leaf. Sometimes we pull back and we look at the tree, and sometimes we pull back and we look at the forest or to use the, the imagery that, that we began within the study of the covenants, like we're in Costa Rica and we get up on a, on a high tree and we look at the whole cloud forest, something that's very common in, in Costa Rica, um, up in the mountains where my, my, my folks used to live up there, and, and literally the clouds would come through the subdivision. It's, just, it's, a, it's a beautiful place. Sometimes we look at the big picture, sometimes we look at the itty-bitty details is this the aorist passive of this particular Greek verb? That's the, that's the details. The details are important. The big picture is important. They're both important. The, the covenants give us the big picture. They give us the meta-narrative of the Bible, the roadmap of history, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. So last time we finished the... Davidic covenant, and we began the new covenant. The Davidic covenant, as we saw just by way of review, is about rulership. It's about kingship. It's about three words, house, throne, and kingdom. A Davidic house, house meaning dynasty, the way we would say, or the Brits would say, the house of Windsor, for example, the dynasty of the the British royal family. When God said to, to David in 2 Samuel 7, house. I will give you a house. I don't want you to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I don't want you to build me a house of sticks and bricks, the temple. I'm going to build you a house that is everlasting. That's the way house is used by God, meaning a dynasty. So there are three words in the Davidic covenant, house, throne, and kingdom. The house of David, the dynasty of David, the throne of David, and the the kingdom of David. Those three words are what comprise the Davidic covenant, and each has an eternal aspect to it because the next king, next king from our perspective, who is the last king is eternal and he will sit on a throne that is eternal and his kingdom will be eternal, which is the eternal Israel. So that's what we saw in the Davidic covenant. The kingdom of the Davidic king is Israel and when he returns, he will rule planet earth through Israel. For that matter, he will rule the entire universe through Israel. And the New Testament promises that he will bring resurrected believers with him. Who's that? That's you and me. And that's Old Testament saints as well. To rule alongside Israel, resurrected believers will rule with God, with Israel. But this kingdom will be hollow and pointless and pathetic. The kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, will be ridiculous if the subjects of the king hate him. 
if the subjects of the king revolt against him. Right? The promise, the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant is a meaningless covenant about house, throne, and kingdom if the subjects of the kingdom hate the king because that's not much of a kingdom. Right? The subjects of the king, the subjects of Jesus, hated him when he first came and desired to kill him. And in fact, they did. They murdered him. It will not be so when the king returns. The king's subjects are the Jewish people. God designed them to be a kingdom of priests, but they consistently rejected his kingdom design. When the king first came, they murdered him. And today they continue, they are the Jewish people, they continue in rebellion against the king, against the Davidic king, Jesus. The new covenant will change all of this because the new covenant will fundamentally change Israel and the Jewish people. The new covenant, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.22, is better. That's the word that he uses. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. Let me refresh your memory with respect to the old covenant. The old covenant is the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is the Torah The law. Now, Torah can be used in different ways. Often, Torah is used, really in in its most broadest sense, Torah is used to mean the first five books of the Bible, the the, the five books, the Pentateuch. Penta is is two Greek words that are put together, which means five, comes from from the penta, from the Greek word five, and tuk or tukas from the the. The, the item that they used to carry the scrolls. And so Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Torah can be used to describe the first five books of the Bible. That's its broadest use. Or Torah, from a more narrow use, can mean the Ten Commandments. Or maybe the most precise way to use the word Torah, the super precise way, is it's Exodus 20 through the end of Deuteronomy. Exodus 20 is where the, the, the Ten Commandments were first given. Exodus 19 is the context for Exodus 20. It comes right before Exodus 20. It's the context for the Mosaic Covenant. Please turn in there in your Bibles just by way of refresher. Exodus 19, verse 1. Remember, this is the chapter where the Israelites are going to meet their God. This is the chapter where they're at Mount Sinai and they're going to meet God Almighty. Exodus 19, verse 1, reads like this. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. This is Mount Sinai, where God is going to give the law. Verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Lord came to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. Remember, Jacob is just another way of saying Israel. God renamed Jacob Israel. So sometimes God, the, the, the text will refer to Jacob. It's another way of saying Israel. Sometimes the text will revert, refer to Israel. We get both at the end of verse 3. 
God speaks in verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Sometimes an eagle will carry another creature on its wings. Have you ever seen this? It is a spectacular image. This is an image that was a picture that was taken by a gentleman by the name of Fu Chan, and it's an eagle carrying a crow on its wings. The crow just hitches a ride on the back of the eagle. Or here's a photo from Jason McCarthy, and it's an eagle carrying a red-winged blackbird. I mean, these are almost unbelievable pictures. This is the imagery, this poetic, powerful imagery that God is using to describe what he did for the Israelites when he took them out of Egypt on eagle's wings, as if he were the eagle carrying his people. Majestic protection is the image here. Keep reading in verse 5. God says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me, there's our phrase, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does a priest do? A priest mediates. A priest is a middleman between God and someone else, between God and the people, between God and others. So God's design for Israel is for Israel to be the middleman, to be the mediator. It's for Israel to mediate as a nation between God and all the other nations, between God and all the other peoples. This is God's design from the very beginning for the people of Israel, for the nation of Israel. Keep reading in verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Second time he says that. And a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now God tells Moses what to say to the people. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Here you see the bilateral nature of the Mosaic Covenant. God says, I call you to do this, and the people respond, all that you say we will do. Bilateral means two parties, just like a contract, right? You have a contract with the bank. They lend you money, and you buy the house. You've got a mortgage. That mortgage is a contract. It's a contract between you and the bank, and the bank will collect on the contract, because if you don't pay them, they're going to take the house. There's a bilateral nature to a mortgage, There's a bilateral nature to the Mosaic Covenant. That's what you're seeing here. It is conditional. One party's obligation is conditioned on the other party's obligation. God's obligation to bless is conditioned on the people's obligation to obey. And then God says, I will curse you if you disobey. It's a bilateral covenant. Unlike the the Abrahamic covenant, which is unilateral and unconditional by God. It's full of I wills. God says, I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this. The Mosaic covenant is bilateral, unlike the Davidic covenant. The Davidic and the Abrahamic are both unilateral. They're both unconditional, both full of I wills that are not conditioned on the people's obedience or on anything. They're conditioned on the holiness, on the integrity of, 
of God. In the Mosaic Covenant, the people abysmally failed. They abysmally violated their agreement when they said, we will follow your words. They failed because of their sin. They failed because of their stubborn hearts, their stubborn, rebellious hearts. By the way, if the law had been given to us, if the law had been given to the Gentiles, to a Gentile nation, we would have failed just like Israel. We would have been just as stubborn, just as stiff-necked, to use the language of the text, as the Israelites. So, so don't think, boy, those, they're a mess. I mean, they are a mess. So are you. So am I. That's, it's just the nature of fallen human, fallen, broken humanity. Israel is the unique people of God. They're the unique people of God. But we see ourselves in them. She is the story of us all. She is the story of the fallen, broken, pathetic condition of humanity. And it is only by God's great mercy that he does not destroy us all. It is only by God's great love and mercy and grace and compassion that he withholds the judgment that Israel deserves. And that he withholds the judgment that we deserve. It is only by his mercy. This is where the new covenant comes in. His blessing. His grace. It's an act of God where God gives grace to Israel. Church age believers also benefit, we will see as we go through this study, they also benefit from the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, though it is not given to us. And we do not replace Israel. We've, we've seen that many, many times. But I'll say it again. You've heard me say it a thousand times, and you'll hear me say it 10,000 more times. The church does not replace Israel. Though we benefit from the spiritual blessings of the new covenant. That's why in communion, in the Lord's Supper, the night before Jesus is to be crucified, he says, this is the new covenant of my blood. Drink it. Right? So we benefit, not that we literally drink the blood of Christ, but we drink the cup, and the cup is representative of the blood of Christ. We benefit spiritually from some of the blessings in the new covenant, the spiritual blessings. But the new covenant is given to Israel. It is God's grace to Israel. He gives the new covenant primarily in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36. Let's start with Jeremiah. Please turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 reads like this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. There are three things that I'd like to point out right up front in this declaration from God. Number one, this is the only time in Hebrew Bible where the term new covenant is found. This is the only time in Hebrew Bible where the term new covenant is, is used. Of course, there are many passages that address the new covenant, but that particular phrase is uniquely found in Jeremiah 31, 31. 
The second thing that I want you to see is that the covenant is given to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's not given to the church. It's not given to the Asians. It's not given to the Scandinavians. It's not given to the Africans. It's given to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Israel refers to the northern kingdom. Judah refers to the southern kingdom. The point is that the promises of the new covenant are given to all of Israel, the whole of Israel. Even though when Jeremiah writes this, there is no northern kingdom. They've been destroyed well over a century before he writes. He's writing near the Babylonian conquest, which is in the late 600s B.C., early 500s B.C. The northern kingdom was destroyed in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. So there is no northern kingdom, but God is memorializing this to explain the breadth of the covenant, the breadth of the covenant applies to all of Israel. And even those Israelites who were in the northern kingdom, who were scattered, because that's what the Assyrians would do. The Assyrians would take the people and they would scatter them in foreign lands. Even from the foreign lands, the covenant applies to all of Israel, no matter where they are. Because God is a God who fulfills his promises, and he is a God of great, great grace. The third thing that I want you to see in verse 31 is that the covenant is future. Notice that phrase, days are coming. Days are coming when I will make a new covenant. In the Old Testament, the new covenant is promised, and it is always presented in a future context. It is always presented as future. This is very important prophetically. In the the Old Testament, the New Covenant was future. And if the New Covenant is not being fulfilled in the church age, which it is not, though we enjoy some of the benefits, spiritual benefits of the New Covenant, but if the New Covenant is not being fulfilled in the church age, and it is not, then its fulfillment for Israel must be reserved for another age, for an age that is after The church age, specifically, it is reserved for the millennium, for the thousand-year reign, that is referred to six times in Revelation chapter 20. I mean, I might be able to get comfortable with the idea that when when, when the text says a thousand years, that, that maybe it means kind of this spiritualized, generalized, long period of time. Maybe I could get comfortable with it that it's a figurative, long period of time if it was mentioned once. Maybe. But it's mentioned six times. 1,000 years is mentioned six times in one chapter in Revelation 20. So it's very difficult to allegorize 1,000 years. It's very difficult to kind of generalize 1,000 years and say, well, we're kind of in the kingdom now. Isn't it a great kingdom? It's so wonderful. It's full of righteousness, Right? I mean, no, our world is characterized by great wickedness, exponentially growing. Every time you turn on the news app, you've got to cringe. Uh, What? I get tired of saying, what? No, we're not in the kingdom today. The kingdom is coming, and it will be a literal thousand years. And in that thousand years, the great blessings of the new covenant will find their fulfillment to the recipient of the new covenant, to the addressee of the new covenant, the one to whom it was addressed, which is none other than Israel. 
We will see all of this as we continue through our study. Keep reading in verse 32. Here God unfolds the description of the covenant or continues unfolding it. He says, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day, I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This new covenant is not like that one, he says. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day, I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. See, God distinguishes the new covenant from an earlier one. Which one is he talking about? Is he talking about the Abrahamic covenant? No. Because the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. Is he talking about the Davidic covenant? No. Because the Davidic covenant is unconditional. He's talking about the Mosaic covenant, and that's kind of obvious, right? Because he's talking about when I took you out of Egypt. Well, who, took, who, who did God use as his servant to take him out of Egypt? <clears throat> Moses. But there's another way that you know that this is the Mosaic covenant. When you find in Hebrew Bible the word covenant, or for that matter, in the New Testament, the word covenant, you ask yourself, what covenant is it? Because there are multiple covenants. And so you can tell by the context which covenant is in reference. Here we know, in addition to, to, to Moses being the one who took him out of Egypt, we know that this is the Mosaic covenant because it says, my covenant which they broke. That's, that, that's a bilateral covenant. That's a covenant where, where Israel had an obligation to do something. Israel has zero obligation to do anything in the Abrahamic covenant. Israel has zero obligation to do anything in the Davidic covenant. But she has an obligation under the Mosaic Covenant because both parties, both God and Israel, had an obligation. And so we know that this is the Mosaic Covenant because they broke it. He performed, God says, but they didn't. He was a faithful husband, but they were, and the implication's obvious, right? They were an adulterous wife. The Abrahamic and Davidic covenants we know are not in view here because those covenants are full of divine I wills. The Abrahamic covenant has three dimensions to it, land, seed, and blessing, as we studied many, many times. The Davidic covenant also has three dimensions to it, house, kingdom, and throne. The nature of the old covenant in verse 32 means that it has to be the Mosaic covenant because that's the only one that was, the only one of the major covenants that was conditional. God further unpacks the new covenant in verse 33. Verse 33 reads like this, But this is the covenant which I will make, future, with the house of Israel, after those days, future, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. By and large, the history of Israel in the Old Testament is a history of rebellion against God, of revolting against God. It began in the Exodus. It began early on when God formed the nation and took her out of Israel. When Moses was at Mount Sinai getting the law in Exodus 32, what were the people doing? Were they waiting patiently for the Lord to send Moses down with the law? I can't wait to hear what God says. I can't wait to hear the word of God. Is that what the people were doing? When they were down and Moses was up on Mount Sinai? No. They were engaging in an orgy, literally. 
a drunken orgy, worshiping their golden calf that they had made. You see, idolatry and sexual immorality are linked, are linked. That's why we see that today in our culture, because we are an idolatrous culture. And the king of the dunghill of idols is we the people. We have elevated ourselves above the God of our fathers, but that's a topic for another day. The Israelites, Israel in the Old Testament, is by and large characterized by rebellion against God, and that began at the very beginning. There in the Exodus, shortly thereafter in the era of the judges, you see great revolting against God. What's the phrase that characterizes the time of the judges? It's the very last verse of the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You say, that's Israel. Those guys were a mess. That's not what we do, right? We're just like them. I mean, that's what characterizes our culture. Everyone does what was right, what is right in their own eyes. The time of of the judges was a time of idolatry and immorality and degeneracy and homosexuality and rape and murder and even human sacrifice in Israel. That's not the pagans. That's not the Philistines. That's not the Moabites. That's not the Edomites. That's the people of God. That's the Israelites. That's what they're characterized by in the time of the judges. Then after the judges is the time of the kings. And most of the kings lead the people into a wickedness. Most of the kings lead the people into rebellion. So God sends the prophets to draw the people back and to correct the wayward kings. But what did the people do to the prophets? They stoned them and killed them. You remember Jesus' words from Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. This is the history of Israel. It is a history of rebellion. There are a few bright spots. Yes, there are. There are bright spots in the history of Israel in the Old Testament. Joshua, David, Hezekiah, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, and many others. But these were the exception. They were not the norm. In Jeremiah 31, 31, God promises an entirely new order of things. He promises a new covenant in which he writes his law not on stones, not on tablets that were made of stone, but he writes his law in their hearts. Within the Jewish people, he will write it. David explained that the person with God's law in his heart is righteous and obedient. Psalm 37, 30. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is the law of God of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, David says. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. The new order of things in the new covenant, which God is describing in Jeremiah 31, 33, also involves intimacy with God. It's not just that he will write his law within their hearts, which is an incredible thing in and of itself. The new order will involve intimacy between God and the Jewish people. God says, I will be their God, 
and they shall be my people. In this new covenant, there will be no need for priests. In the new covenant, there will be no need for middlemen between God and Israel. They will have direct access to God and to his word. No need for a priest. Does that sound familiar to church-age believers? No need for a priest. You don't need to go to the priest to, to have him pray, to you, pray for you on your behalf to go to God. You go to God. You have direct access to God because the, the New Testament describes us as having a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. And so that is one of the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, though the new covenant is directed to Israel. It's not directed to the church. But the church at this time enjoys some, some of the spiritual blessings of the new covenant temporarily. When God in the flesh comes to take his church out then we will cease enjoying those blessings of the new covenant on the planet. But the new covenant, when we return, the new covenant is given to Israel. And in the thousand-year reign, Israel will enjoy the benefits of the new covenant, and we will enjoy it as well. But we are the church. And the only aspect of the new covenant that we enjoy is some of the spiritual benefits of the new covenant although the new covenant is given for Israel and to Israel. In this new covenant, there will be no need for priests because God will be with his people. There will be such great intimacy between God and the people of Israel that there will be no need for priests. Keep reading in verse 34. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. This is a very important word to know. The Hebrew verb here is yada. And it can mean knowing data or knowing intellectual, having intellectual knowledge. It can mean that. But it can also mean, as it does here, much, much, much more than simply knowing data. It means to know someone intimately. The word is even used in Hebrew Bible to describe the sexual union between a husband and a wife. Obviously, Jeremiah 31 is not saying that humans have sex with God. The living God is not like the pagan no-gods of antiquity that, that supposedly had sex with women and, 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 and with human beings. Those are pagan no-gods of the imagination of the Romans and the Greeks and the other pagan peoples of the past. That is not the living God. God does not have sex with human beings. But God does use the sexual intimacy of a husband and a wife as an illustration for the union between him and his people. This is a topic that we're about to enter into that frankly is uncomfortable to talk about. Because it's going to be racy. I mean, the language is racy here. And it's, 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 it's awkward. But it's in the Bible. And we don't apologize for the Bible. Ever. So here we go. Please turn to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. 
And as you turn there, let me just give you a little background here. <clears throat> let me mention a few things before we get into the text. God uses the sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife as an illustration for the union between him and his people. He does that in the New Testament with Ephesians 5, where the Apostle Paul says that the union between a husband and a wife, including the sexual union, reveals the divine design for intimacy between Christ and church-age believers. And Paul describes that as a mystery. By the way, that's why the Bible describes homosexuality as an abomination, because it confuses and counterfeits God's teaching on theology. It's the devil's effort, the devil's effort to cut off God's teaching on theology, because Paul says in Ephesians 5 that that union between a husband and a wife is the image of the union between Christ and church-age believers. New Testament. And then Old Testament, there is the romantic union between husband and wife, which God uses to illustrate his union with his people, with Israel, I mean. In Hosea, Hosea, the prophet Hosea, is told by God to go find a whore and marry her. That's just what it says. We'll see that in a, in a moment. Go find a prostitute. And marry that prostitute. This is the image. This marriage will be the visible image of how God is faithful to his unfaithful wife, Israel. Though she is unfaithful, he will be faithful and he will love her. Though she is unfaithful. She engaged, Israel engaged in both spiritual harlotry and physical harlotry, temple prostitution, though God loves her. Look at verse 1 of the book of Hosea, chapter 1. The word, of the, Lord, the word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So this is the time, Hosea is writing in the time of the divided kingdom. The kingdom in the north has the name Israel. The kingdom in the south has the name Israel. Judah. And Hosea is primarily a prophet to the northern kingdom. Verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of harlotry, a prostitute, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. This is a reference to the northern kingdom. There's the valley of Jezreel. And in the northern kingdom, they were exceptionally wicked. Jehu was the king of the northern kingdom. And God would judge their wickedness and their idolatry because there's always a reckoning. There's always a reckoning. There's always a time when God says, ya no mas. No more. No more. When God's patience runs out. Verse 5, On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her 
Lo Ruamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. Meaning, the northern kingdom's time for repentance will be finished. Their time to turn back will be over. God's patience with them will run out. And this was the time when God brought the brutal Assyrian invaders to destroy the northern kingdom. Verse 7, But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. God is drawing a distinction. The northern kingdom I will utterly destroy through the Assyrians, but the southern kingdom, Judah, I will have compassion on them. And remember, God delivered the southern kingdom from the Assyrians, not by bow or by horse or by any military, human military. He appeared among the Assyrians and slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians in the middle of the night. So they woke up and said, it's time to go. we got to get out of here because Israel's God has slaughtered our army. They're encamped against Jerusalem. They're going to take Jerusalem, the Assyrians, and God slaughters them, not by bow or by sword or by battle or by horse or by horseman, but by God. This is, this is the distinction that God is making here. Then in chapter 2, God uses the sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife to illustrate his design for intimacy with Israel. Please turn to Hosea chapter 2, verse 13. This is where the text gets racy. In verse 13, God says this about Israel. I will punish her for the days of the Baals. Baals was an idol. Was the idols of 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 the the Canaanites, the, the 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 pagans that lived around Israel? I will punish her, punish Israel, for the days of the Baals, when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers, so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. This refers to the idolatry and probably the temple prostitution that the Israelites picked up from their pagan neighbors. Then in verse 14, God shifts from punishment to reconciliation. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. This verse is full of sexual connotations. The phrase to speak kindly to her in the Hebrew is to speak to her heart, the way a man might seduce a woman with words. Often, A woman seduces a man with her body. And often a man seduces a woman with his words. Here you have this imagery of this sort of a thing. It's the same Hebrew phrase, to speak kindly to her, is the same Hebrew phrase used in Genesis 34 for a man named Shechem, who spoke this way to a woman named Dinah, who the text describes that Shechem desired Dinah sexually. He was very attracted to her sexually. Shechem was to Dinah. So Shechem in Genesis 34 speaks to Dinah's heart, or to to use our English here, speaks kindly to her. That's what the phrase means. It's a phrase that that in verse 14 is portraying an, an image of a husband who amazingly forgives his prostitute wife. Incredibly, this husband wants his wife back 
who has played the prostitute. So he takes her to a private, secluded place, described here as the wilderness, away from her former lovers to speak suggestive, erotic words to her, to seduce her, to seduce his faithless wife back to him. Verse 14 is what you would call an anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism is a theological word that is two Greek words squished together. Anthropos, morphe. Anthropos, where we get our English word man. And morphe is form. So anthropomorphism is God using words of human form. God being portrayed in human form. God is here in this in, in verse 14 using language of accommodation. That's what an anthropomorphism is. Or you have an anthropopathism. Anthropos plus pathos. Pathos. You put those two Greek words together, you get anthropopathism. Meaning, describing God with human emotions. Anthropopathism. This is an anthropomorphism. Describing God with human activities. And so verse 14 is an anthropomorphism where God is saying, though Israel has been unfaithful with her many adulterous lovers, I still want her. Despite that, I still want her. And I'm going to draw her back to me the way a husband might seduce his estranged wife back to him. This is an awkward anthropomorphism because there are sexual connotations to it, but is in the word of God. So we proclaim it from the rooftops. God is using powerful imagery to teach the new covenant how he will bless Israel, how he will draw Israel back to Kim as if she were an adulterous wife, a faithless wife, a wife who engaged in prostitution, though she is utterly unworthy for her husband. Her husband wants her. Her husband longs for her. And her husband seduces her back to him. That's the imagery that is being used here in the text. Verse 15, Then I will give her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi. Your Bible should say Ishi. Does it say Ishi in your Bible? If it says Ishi, there'll be a note. Ishi is the Hebrew word for my husband. My husband. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me my husband. You're not going to call me the name of Johnny, of Billy, that you just had that adulterous affair with. You're going to call me my husband. This is the intimacy between God and Israel that God will reestablish. Israel won't reestablish it. She is utterly incapable of it, utterly unworthy. Israel will initiate, will long for his adulterous, excuse me, God will initiate it, bringing back his adulterous wife, Israel. Verse 16, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me my husband and will no longer call me Bali, my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. 
so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day, I will also make, there's our word, a covenant. In that day, I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and the war, excuse me, the, the sword and war from the land and will make them lie down in safety. This is a reference to the blessing of the new covenant, which will be enjoyed in the millennial reign, in the thousand year reign. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. There's our word yada again. It's the same imagery. Imagery of intimacy between a husband and a wife. Intimacy between Israel and her betrothed, Yahweh. This union will come through the new covenant. Please turn back to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. See, the new covenant is found throughout or let's say, in many spots in the Old Testament. Some spots are more detailed, like Jeremiah 31, but other spots, it's there, like in Hosea 2. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, reads like this, They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. With God there are no Switzerland's. You know what I mean when I say that? Right? In World War II, Switzerland would say, hey, we're not going to take sides. We're not going to take sides with the Nazis. We're not going to take sides with the Allies. They were neutral. So everybody would put their money in Switzerland. Right? If you're, if you're a Nazi, you put, your, you put your money in the banks in Switzerland, especially when the Allies are close to the Rhine River. You put your money over there because, you know, if you're able to make it out, you can get your money out of the account. Because Switzerland is neutral. With God, there are no Switzerlands. There's no neutrality with God. You're either intimate with him or you are hostile to him. Those are the only two options. Either intimacy or hostility. Today, the Jewish people are hostile towards God. When the new covenant is fulfilled, they will be intimate. Intimate. That's why you have this racy, Awkward language in a Hosea chapter 2, for example. Intimate. And in the new covenant, they will no longer teach, know the Lord. That's what God says here in verse 34, right? They're not going to say to each other, know the Lord. They're not going to teach and preach intimacy with God. They won't need to. Because it's going to be there. I'm not saying that there's not going to be teaching of the Word of God in the millennium. I, I think there will be teaching and preaching of the Word of God. I'm saying that they won't teach, stop being hostile to God. They're not going to have to say that. Stop rebelling against God. Stop being hostile to God. That's not going to be taught because they're going to know God. There's going to be this closeness, this warmth, this friendship between God and Israel. In the New Covenant, the Jewish people will be permanently intimate with God, so much so that some commentators believe that in the millennium there will be no unbelieving Jews. 
Some commentators believe that in the millennium, every single descendant, racial descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with that DNA in their blood, every one of them will be believers. Some commentators believe. I don't go as far as that because everybody's still going to have free will. But I understand why those commentators make that argument. With that, we'll close the new covenant this morning and we'll see more of it next Sunday. Let's close there in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We ask that you sanctify us by it, transform us by it, help us appreciate what you are planning to do with Israel and that help us appreciate the blessings that will flow to us through them. Help us appreciate that you are a God who makes promises and keeps them. Help us appreciate that you are a God who loves Israel and loves all peoples. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.